And I'd stopped off for a coffee halfway there when I had a message from the guy that had booked me saying, oh, really sorry, but the rest of the band have booked someone else, so uh, we don't need you tonight. Which sucked. And I was pretty disappointed that they didn't even offer to cover the petrol I used getting halfway to the show, much less my time that day spent learning a load of tracks for that evening. is a real shame. But for every gig like that, hundreds more pass off without incident. And dealing with amateurs and honest mistakes at that is just sort of like tax of a system run largely on trust. But it is funny how there are so few other industries that I can think of where trust is the primary driver of interaction. And it's an argument for maybe more contracts being needed or for them to need to, for it to be normalised, I guess. It's, it's a hangover from music being an art and art not being taken seriously by some people, especially, I'd argue, the people doing it. Hi and welcome to Big Gig Energy, a podcast by musicians, for musicians, helping you get bigger gigs, no matter what level you're at. I'm your host, Steve Leggett, and with 10 years' experience as a professional musician doing everything from pubs and functions to travelling the world in a ukulele boy band, I understand that being a musician is rarely the glamorous experience people make it out to be, and that building your career up to a point where you get to go pro is about the most challenging professional leap of faith there is. But I'm going to use my experience and insight, and maybe a guest or two, to help you activate your own Big Gig Energy and take things to the next level, whether you're a season pro or just starting out so let's get to it ladies and gentlemen and others how do it's time for episode nine of big gig energy we're on the final solo episode of this first season now and i'm going to throw out some facts real quick about the subject of contracts and how to make deals that work for both parties and not just the people asking you to sign them contracts are an inescapable part of being in any industry sooner or later you're going to come across something that's worth doing to a point where you're going to want it in writing. And that's the point where contracts come in. They've existed in music specifically as long as there have been musicians. I mean, the most famous example has got to be this Faustian tale of a man who was a bit of a rubbish guitarist and apparently Sun House told him he was a load of rubbish and should quit guitar. But this is Mississippi Delta area, early 1900s. Versions vary, but this guy vanishes for six months and returns with unearthly prowess on the guitar, having been instructed to meet a man at a specific crossroads at midnight and then turns up and fella's got cloven hooves and a pointy tail and trades some sick-ass licks for Robert Johnson's soul there and then. It's been mirrored and it's been parodied and versions of this doing a deal with the devil trope have appeared all over popular culture since. You know, there was the... In the 1700s, there was a story called Bearskin, which the Brothers Grimm um, did a version of, I think. Um, Bearskin's fascinating. Uh, look it up on Wikipedia. I've just get the synopsis. Um, this isn't story time. I, I thought about retelling it, and it's like, actually, I'll leave that to the likes of Morbid and whatever. There are other podcasts specifically for such matters. But, but yeah, Bearskin, look that up. And then, obviously, 1986 film Crossroads, where, you know, Ralph Macchio, he's in between... Karate Kid 2 filming, he's having guitar lessons, so he can he can do that. And that's all based around the whole Robert Johnson thing. Treehouse of Horror 4, uh, Simpsons, of course. Um, there's a parody of a much older film called The Devil and Daniel Webster. Oh, I forget what the dude in Daniel Webster trades his soul for, but it's not a donut like Homer Simpson does. And then even you got Tommy Wiseau, legendary director, actor, dreamweaver. Um, he did a short film called uh, House That Drips Blood on Alex, which, again, you got yourself a classic demonic entity contract signed in blood and it doesn't end well for Tommy Wiseau's character but anyways the Johnson tale the Robert Johnson tale true or otherwise it's a pretty close retelling of 
the German folktale Faust. And yeah, it's a definite trope stems from this idea of not doing deals with the devil. And it's generally a bit of a bad idea for one person or another. And it's very much been in pop culture since at least the 1700s. And I bet if I bothered to Google this for more than five minutes, I'd probably have found examples going back way further than that. They're all warnings about considering contracts carefully. And they exist for a reason. Like, anytime you have a negotiation, one of the parties will start off trying to get one up over the other. If not both parties, ideally, start off trying to get one up over the other. Only through negotiation to get to a point where both parties can be happy, or at the very least, both parties equally unhappy. But again, linking it back to musicians specifically, a contract should benefit both parties equally, but most of the time, bands or musicians, they're artists, you know, they're not naturally business people, and decent managers are business people by definition. So there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of examples of exploitation out there. You only got to think of the recent thing with Taylor Swift going and re-recording her back catalogue to think of uh, an example of things not working out too peachy with a manager. Which brings us on to management contracts. These are between a manager and a band. Usually they include some kind of exclusivity clause, which means all work taken on by the band must be via said managers, who will take a cut of between 10 and 40%, depending how much of a bastard they are. Not that I've been hurt. Um... <laughs> There's a lot of great managers out there, a lot of fantastic, caring people that genuinely do great stuff. But there's also a lot of chances and a lot of, yeah, just people you want to swerve. So, you know, I would say never, never sign over more than 20% commission for sure, um, unless you're getting offered really big money very early in your career. But incentivized by a cut of the earnings, the good managers will go out of the way and they'll get as many well-paying gigs for the band as possible in addition to keeping the promo pack up to date, sorting out distribution, keeping the band on track with their aspirations and worrying about things like photo shoots and booking anything, doing all the admin, all of these things should be taken care of by a manager and a good one will be on top of all of that. But the flip side of that is that a manager also often will want a huge amount of creative control in those things. So you've got to make sure that your creative aspirations and your aesthetic aspirations line up with those of your manager because on the one hand they're trying to make you as commercial as possible because the more commercial you are the more successful you be the more successful you be the more money they get the more they benefit from it again there's some fantastic managers out there i'm not trying to throw shade on the entire industry but again it's worth being warned just to go into things with your eyes open things specifically to watch out for are generally again whether that percentage cut they take from your gigs is fair how long the contract is for um you know this is usually two to four years before renewal but definitely keep an eye on that look if there's any kind of get out clause or any grounds for dissolution of the contract um, how much creative autonomy the band will have over things like their music promo things like choice of studio choice of photographers etc and again yeah just the band need to have a say in their careers in general as well. Like, you know, whether they want to pursue original music, which is much less lucrative than covers for band and manager, but far more rewarding for the band, less so for the manager. Therefore, most managers will, yeah, I, the cynic in me says they'll generally steer you away from that if you're also a successful covers band. And of course, managers will decide or do their very best to decide whether you should go on a crooked talent show for five minutes of fame. Record deals are another consideration, another thing you'll usually have to sign as a musician at some point, particularly, obviously, on the original side of things. And, yeah, this is a thing, like, this podcast, obviously, my background is in 
covers mostly. I've done a lot of originals work, but my paid work and my professional work has mostly been covers. So a lot of this podcast is, you know, nine episodes in now, you'll have probably noticed, is coming from a cover band type direction. But it's important to shout out to the other people out there. And obviously originals band, originals music, originals artists, rappers, all these things. Yeah, the record deal is often the golden goose. That's the goal you're aiming for at the end of this. But they're becoming less and less relevant and less important to today's musicians. You don't actually need one anymore. There was a time you absolutely had to have a record deal. Back in the day, studio time was really bloody expensive. And the idea of owning studio equipment at home was reserved for those already mega successful. So you never start off in your bedroom with a studio. I mean, I'm literally, I'm recording this in my bedroom right now. I've got a Mac and some monitors and a sexy ribbon mic that a mate's lent me. And I'm recording this here. Whereas years ago, even 15, 20 years ago, I'd have had to pay a significant amount of money for studio time. And yeah, obviously the quality of this isn't going to be as good as it would be in a proper studio. But for me, it sounds decent. I'm happy with it. But this would have been impossible back in the day, and specifically for recording music as well, recording drums, anything complicated like that. It just couldn't be done for less than a significant amount of money. Which is why, in effect, both then and now, record deals are actually enormous loans, and they're designed to pay for the recording and distribution of an album, the creation of promotional materials, the outgoing costs of a subsequent tour. This goes back to the creation of the album cycle in the 50s and 60s, which would go something like this. You'd record an album, you'd create the promo for it, you'd release the album, you'd do a tour in support of the album, and then usually towards the end of that tour, you'd start writing material, which we would then record for the next album, and you'd rinse and repeat that cycle over and over and over again. Often artists would be signed for multiple albums, but again, this is happening rarer and rarer these days. You know, major labels, they go instead for betting their cash on the safest of bets, you know, so-called legacy artists, people already huge, or people that they're willing to, you know, they're so focus groups that they know for sure they're going to be mega successful. Instead of taking risks like they used to on unknown artists or even developing new ones, there was a time that you could go a bit like there's the I think it's South Park did the joke about Netflix, you know, the hello Netflix, you're greenlit. It used to be a bit like that with record labels where you could go in with a band and you could pretty much be guaranteed some kind of record deal if you had more than five songs. But obviously with streaming and illegal downloads and all these things, recorded music became worthless. So there's no reward for record companies in taking risks anymore. And as that money from recordings dried up, then so did the money for A&R, really, artist and repertoire. They just don't really focus on that anymore. But the main reason for the decline of the formal record deal, again, just comes back to that anyone that owns a laptop, an audio interface and some monitors has basically a professional quality recording studio already. And you could easily put that together for less than a grand. Once in the possession of a studio, the recording of tracks and albums is effectively free of charge. Obviously, if you want to put a sheen on it, then you might get a producer in, you might send it off for mastering or mixing and things, but the actual recording of the album that used to be the really expensive part, that is now negligible. I mean, you can you can literally buy a functioning studio for the cost we used to spend on like a four-track EP at somewhere decent. Promotional materials, again, used to cost a fortune. You'd have to print posters, pay someone to go and stick flyers everywhere. Nowadays, because everything's digital, everything's online, 
you can create these promo materials for free on you know free to use graphic design software canva and adobe express all these and most smartphones today have better image quality than pro level dslr cameras from less than a decade ago i mean i've got a canon 5d mark ii my dslr and it was i think 2009 it came out obama's swearing in portrait was taken on one of them and yet my smartphone arguably takes better pictures and that's just the space of 10 years physical releases and merch can now be purchased at small scale as well cds short runs of those can be incredibly affordable really really cheap and venues can be booked on the basis of ticket sales so you no longer need to pay a huge sum of money to book out an auditorium and then hope that you'll sell enough tickets to get your money back obviously at certain levels you do but it's possible to do that diy thing from the very ground up in a way that i'd argue you just couldn't 30 years ago certainly not 40 or 50 years ago the ability to create market distribute and tour music today has never been cheaper so the reality is that having an enormous budget is just no longer the way to record and tour successfully, which is why the record deal is a bit pointless. I'd hold up Wolfpack as a shining example of this modern DIY approach. They're innovative ideas like Sleepify, which was a silent album set up as a playlist and just designed to be looped and played overnight on a loop by fans. And this would rack up loads of nodes of listens, which would at the time under Spotify's old um, algorithm and royalty system that would make them a fortune and i think they made twenty thousand dollars as a result of that and this was more than enough for them to pay for a free concert tour like free for fans it changed how spotify worked out artist royalties and disrupted the industry as a whole obviously spotify's artist royalty system is fucked up beyond all recognition at the moment uh, which is a real shame and yeah wolfpack are kind of partially responsible for that but you know credit to them the system's there and sometimes you've got to, it's, it's the right business decision to make sometimes to just look at the system and exploit any gaps you see. Because it's by doing that and by disrupting it, that's how you can, how you can turn things to your favour, I suppose. Another contract that comes up commonly are gig contracts. These are usually given to musicians by a band that's hired them for a particular gig. Some bands I work with use these, some don't. It's interesting that the music industry is in a unique position for the sheer amount of trust which keeps it running. Particularly as a hired gun like I am, 99% of the time you might get offered a gig by a random phone number or a complete stranger on Facebook Messenger because, for whatever reason, the music industry is still using Facebook predominantly instead of Instagram like the rest of the world. But you get a, num you get a message off this number or this person on Facebook, you turn up and it's fine and you get paid. Every now and again... You might have a bad experience, though. Um, I'm thinking of my New Year's Eve 2022. I had no gig in the calendar, having respectfully declined a few that didn't pay enough for me to justify going out to work on a night where driving home would be like Mario Kart, on account of all the drunk drivers about. But I got a last-minute call that came in with a few hours' notice. I think I got the message at maybe 2pm, and I confirmed it. It was COVID cover for a bassist that was off sick set off to be there at the agreed time and i'd stopped off for a coffee halfway there when i had a message from the guy that had booked me saying oh really sorry but the rest of the band have booked someone else so uh we don't need you tonight which sucked and i was pretty disappointed that they didn't even offer to cover the petrol i used getting halfway to the show much less my time that day spent learning a load of tracks for that evening is a real shame but for every gig like that hundreds more pass off without incident and dealing with amateurs and honest mistakes at that is just 
sort of like tax of a system run largely on trust. But it is funny how there are so few other industries that I can think of where trust is the primary driver of interaction. And it's an argument for maybe more contracts being needed or for them to need to for it to be normalized i guess it's, it's a hangover from music being an art and art not being taken seriously by some people especially i'd argue the people doing it similar to management contracts there are agency contracts and agencies agencies operate in a similar way to managers but with a key difference they employ the band rather than the band employing the agency as they would with managers usually this works as follows Band takes on a pseudonym to use with the agency, which is kind of a watered-down exclusivity clause. But what that means is that if the band gains any repeat bookings from an agency gig, the same agency gets their fees, rather than the band going direct or going through a different agency. The beauty of this is that bands can sign up for lots of different agencies with lots of different names. And yeah, there's a lot of trust in these arrangements, but they're mutually beneficial. The agent benefits from working with quality bands that garner repeat bookings, and the band benefits from an additional sales pipeline. Like I say, many bands work with multiple agencies using different names for each one and basically just sit there and wait for the emails to come in offering them work. But really crucially here, unlike a manager, agencies generally have no say whatsoever in the artistic or aesthetic direction of a band. They can make suggestions but ultimately it's down to both parties to continue working together or not, and these relationships will continue as long as they remain mutually beneficial, unlike managerial contracts, which continue only as long as they benefit the managers, usually. Contracts will also be taken out with clients. When an agency or a band take on a client, i.e. get a gig, an agreement will usually be put forward by the agency or band and signed by the client. This agreement will set out the band's terms of service, level of service, expectations, you know, these things like access to the buffet, access to a huge bowl of M&Ms with blue ones taken out, and also other key items, such as making it clear if the band are a set or a revolving lineup, i.e., is there just one band with set members, or is it like the Funtime Frankies, where there's a huge pool of musicians that have been very, very carefully vetted, and they can be put together in any order depending on the gig. Most function bands of a reasonable size will have something a bit like that. But these agreements need to be watertight, and it needs to be made very clear that the band will only play if the contract has been read, understood, and agreed to. So that's a really rough look at some of the different types of contract out there. The record deal stuff is important, but also so is the importance of recognising the difference between an agent and a manager. There are plenty of managers pretending to be agencies out there, and vice versa. So knowing the difference is important because particularly where managers pretend to be agents is really shady, really shady because they'll go, oh, we're an agency and we'll get you loads of gigs. And then actually they make you sign an exclusivity clause and make you do your showreel exactly their way and basically try and take full control and then sue you if you get gigs with anyone else. Not to name names, but these people are out there and they suck. So watch out for them. I guess overall, and again, like this is just my experience, and as you can probably guess, I have had some bad experiences with managers in the past and some very, very good ones with agencies, which is why I always say to particularly covers bands, get with as many agencies as you can and as few managers as you can and you'll be fine. But the overall theme of my solo episodes in this season comes back, which is just treat your talent as a commodity and a valuable one at that. 
and conduct your band activities as business activities because that's what they are. And if you don't, other people who actually do treat them like business activities will make you their bitch. So to close, what advice would I give to anyone looking for any kind of deal, contract or agreement, any of the versions that we've talked about in this episode already? Firstly, I would say always read any agreements in full. Don't forget the South Park Human Sentai Pad episode. Make sure you know exactly what you're getting into and don't be intimidated by dense legalese because that is exactly what it is there for. It's there to make you go, oh, fuck that, I'm not going to read that. If you're a member of the Musicians Union in the UK, take full advantage of the legal advice they offer, which includes a contract reading and advice service. The MU comes with a lot of really useful insurance and services and the PLI alone is worth looking into it for, but it does cost a fortune compared to other stuff out there. You know, it's currently, I think, 240 quid a year. But if the MU doesn't do it for you, if you're on the cusp of signing a deal, I strongly advise you to at very least have a close, trusted family member or again a close trusted friend just cast an objective eye over the whole thing make sure it's been read and understood because if it's in the contract you've got no recourse if you've agreed to it and there may well come a time where you need a recourse and if there's something in the contract you don't like the time to bring it up is before you sign it so let's leave this here i hope it's been useful to you obviously there's a big old world out there i've experienced Bigger than most, but still only a small part of it. I'm sure there are loads of amazing managers out there who have the welfare and careers of musicians and artistic integrity of musicians right at the forefront of their mind. But the ones I've dealt with and come across haven't always had that as the case. So just watch out for anything you agree. Make sure you're not signing a deal with a guy with horns and a pointy tail and cloven hooves. Next week will, of course, be the final episode in the current season of Big Gig Energy. We've got something rather special planned for this. It's going to be an interview, but with a twist, um, which all will become clear closer to the time. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Big Gig Energy podcast. This is the bit where I'm obliged to fish for engagement and stuff, so you can find me on Instagram as Big Gig Energy, that's B-I-G-G-I-G-E-N-E-R-G-Y, or you can get in touch via email at biggigenergy at gmail.com. I'll uh, link anything relevant in the show notes below, but otherwise, if you've had any thoughts on this episode or would be interested in some one-to-one coaching for yourself and or your band, feel free to get in touch. Otherwise, do all the usual social media stuff, I guess, and let's keep the discussion going. Many thanks as ever to all my supporters and collaborators, and as always, best of luck with your next big gig.